0: How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to The Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley. And I have a very, very special guest with me today. I have Andrea Brianna who is the founder and CEO of Rebel Mouse? They are a premium publishing platform for high-value websites that reach over 100 million people monthly. And before starting at Rebel Mouse, Andrea was the CTO at Huffington Post. She's also an advisor for American Express Digital Board and a Techstars mentor. And on top of it, she's openly transgender and lives with her wife and four kids in Brooklyn. Welcome. Happy
1: to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's quite, quite a, a resume that you got there. You got Huffington Post, you got American Express, you know, Techstars. So it looks like you got a lot keeping you busy. So before we right, get yeah. into your backstory, I want to do a quick revenue rundown so everybody has some context in terms of who you are, where you're at, and your journey so far. So where are you at in terms of ARR or annual revenue?
1: We did 10 million in bookings last year, and we're growing at probably 50% this year.
0: Wow. Fifty percent grow. That's that's nothing to shake a stick at it at, at, uh, at ten million. So congratulations on that. What's your your primary go to market strategy?
1: Um, we have focused on having a beautiful product and experience that spreads through word of mouth. We build high value websites, and there's you know, relatively speaking, a, a smaller community of tens of thousands of people that are kind of read similar things and share social networks. And so we've grown a part, large part by that and by content that we write from our strategic insights and work with Google and others that, uh, and that's really what fuels the business and helping people understand how we're a real partner to them and not a vendor and can really help solve their digital business needs.
0: That's awesome word of mouth and content. So, um, how large is your team?
1: We are now up to 90 people who were global globally distributed pre COVID. We had no office. And so there's, I think it's 87 of us actually, and we're in 31 countries. Wow.
0: 31 countries pretty diverse
1: yeah we really it's a it's a very important thing for i was born in mexico and grew up in the bay area a mexican family and an irish american family i always felt this international understanding would be important in my life but um mm-hmm. uh, it hasn't been because i natively speak spanish but more understanding you know the different opportunities that people are given access to or not and breaking subconscious barriers that the Bay Area and VC method, you know, frameworks generally think of five guys together with a whiteboard. And they usually mean it literally five guys. <laughs> And uh, so we're, we're really proud. We find incredibly talented people who are otherwise maybe not given the same opportunities to rise to C-level in the team. You know, normally if you hire a Brazilian developer for CSS work, that's what you expect from them, you know, for years to come. Yeah. And we actually look for the same type of thing of growth regardless of location. So it's it's become a really nice Uh, recruiting and retention thing is we have a very unique culture and team.
0: That's so cool. I, I mean, in 30, I mean, I love traveling. I love different cultures and it's so, it's so, so cool to meet just different people and their thoughts. So, um, I think that's amazing. and and can you walk through your solution just really quick at it from a high level so everybody has some context?
1: Yeah. so if for most people, just it might be helpful to know, you know we our number one direct competitor is WordPress. and that's what people use to build websites predominantly, especially when they're higher value websites. and Otherwise, Mm -hmm. they do a custom CMS, and CMS is Content Management System. So you need your website to dynamically update with the content written by marketing teams or editors or journalists, and you need that reader experience to be absolutely super high end and integrated with advertising or conversion to purchase, et cetera. And that's what we do, Um, and we do it in a very different way with WordPress every install is its own independent install and you have to maintain it and keep it secure and keep it fast and keep it modern and what's happening is the open web um is a little bit in threat because our attention has shifted to facebook and twitter and instagram that can guarantee good experience on every page because they have like a team of 100 engineers per screen Um, and websites still really matter, especially as we worry about privacy and third-party tracking. The open web is an incredibly important thing, but consumers don't have empathy for a bad website. Like when they go to the website, they're like, yeah, but probably you only had two people. And <laughs> it was probably like, so what we solve is the highest level of performance and user experience that can actually make a website sticky and worth returning to and at the same time is built for distribution so what google expects your website to be you know there's for for those who don't know google has this core web vitals initiative it's very important it's a way to measure they used to do page speed and they realized Mm -hmm. core web vitals is a better way to express that you know, if you load a page and it jumps around as things load, that, that's officially annoying. And we won't send traffic to sites that are annoying or slow or badly built. And passing Core Web Vitals is actually very hard. It used to be, if you went five years ago, Google, and you go measure their page, your page speed score, they gave everyone, it was like great inflation for teachers at a school. They'd give everyone gets an A or a B, don't worry. And Then they realize their core search business is at threat because why are we going to go Google things to go end up on sites we don't like? So it's a real, real problem that they're really, truly addressing now. And so what they switched with Core Web Vitals is everybody got a failing grade. It's like the teacher goes berserk and literally no one passes. And you're allowed to retake the test. But now, a year and a half after announcing Core Web Vitals, very few sites are getting a good grade. Most of them are getting absolute fails. And Mm -hmm. that type of a thing is what we keep all of our clients modern on. So it's not that each one of our clients has to worry about it. The platform worries about those types of things. And then as an agency, we can do all the creative, fun, customization You know, we have a site called Market News, which sells content to traders. So it's very important. It's financial. It's news you're going to spend money on. And they have a complex integration with Salesforce so that they're managing the subscription experience and they're making it efficient for their sales team. Um, you know, or Penske, the U-Haul competitor, where you go and find a truck and rent it. And we've helped them win in search, uh, beating out, uh, a lot of competitors. And they've grown a lot with us, um, or simple like a vault 12 or gangels that need a really clean marketing site that wins the top. You know, they don't need to win. Like a lot of our media clients, they work with news phrases That you wouldn't know that you need to win Russia-Ukraine war, you know, uh, but today you have to. And that's very different, that type of news phrases versus marketing Mm -hmm. websites where you know, like, you need to win this five search phrases to drive real business. And we help marketing websites and companies marketing departments and, and uh, win those search phrases organically through what we do.
0: Okay, well that's that's really that's that's good. I mean that's that's a good overview. So thank you for sharing that. And so last but not least, what are you bootstrapped or are you funded?
1: Um, I had a great network after the exit of Huffington Post, so it was pretty easy for me to raise money. I don't mean that as as a bragging point i think maybe i should have raised less but yeah we've raised 23 million <laughs> in total okay so you
0: did more like friends and family raise or network raise versus a you it, know
1: typical vc model or something it was like that, very it much like. a vc model i mean from the beginning oh, well, because it it's not fair just the fact that i had the people i work with who I was so close with and I consider friends were now VCs. I don't think it's fair. I like just, I want to acknowledge the privilege that I had. I I worked hard to earn it by being, you know, by the success of Huffington Post. But yeah, it was, it felt as easy as friends and family to raise the first rounds for Ravel I did hit a point just to be clear. We were going to raise another 25 million and the numbers we didn't have the numbers to justify that Mm -hmm. so we're an interesting company because while we raised 23 million about four or five years ago we switched a bit to a model that would be sustainable normally vc funded companies like they don't they very frequently don't learn how to stop burning money in time Mm yeah yeah because you're in you're what you're told is learn to burn money we you we gave you 5 million go spend it don't keep it in a treasure chest the whole point is we want you to be the next huge thing so go spend that money at the height for us of what I call stupidity we were burning 800,000 a month Wow <laughs> which is so brutal for me to, to I want to share the hardships and such like I, I was supposedly doing the right thing by spending that amount of money but and I'm not a person who spends a lot of time in regrets and hindsight is always 2020 <laughs> but for sure, we learned how to be much more efficient about things and have a much happier business culture that is also on a growth path. Um, so,
0: so quick question before you keep going on on that. Um, how, how did you spend 800k a month? What was it mostly on? Was it on um, development resources? Was it on engineers? Was it on the most sales and marketing? The when most
1: expensive it? people in the world are salespeople.
0: <laughs> they are. They are. I know. I come
1: from that world. man. <laughs> so, so we had, and, a, and they're we really had a very expensive. If you get them wrong, we had, oh so expensive when you get them wrong. And when they're right, but too early. And I think I think back to one moment, Eric Hippo, who is the Hippo Lear Ventures, and he was CEO of Huffington Post, and I really adore the man, he's, he's wonderful, so brilliant. I remember him telling me, are you ready, before we hired the sales, are you really ready to sell this thing like that? And with all this like great press and great growth and all this feeling of mojo, I said yes. But I think back to that moment where I should have said, no, wait, thank you for asking that question. Maybe we aren't ready. Because I had (laughs) salespeople that fall into a few buckets. I had some salespeople that were absolutely awesome people who I love, who care about the people they're selling to And I think maybe now we'd be ready for them, but we weren't ready when I hired them. And then we hired people who, I mean, to be blunt, fall into kind of like sociopath territory.
0: (laughs) I've seen them before. Very toxic. I've worked with them before. Very high
1: performing, like the output, they bring real big deals to the table, but at what cost? Like it was crazy how they treated other people. Oh. Yeah, And so one thing that happened at the height of that 800,000 a month burn is that we had such big goals. There was such a high tolerance for drama in the sake of output that the culture that I described as having, that I wanted us to have, that I thought we should have was completely different from what we actually had. So we overspent also. I don't think you need an office. And we had a very gorgeous office in Soho in Manhattan which was also very expensive. And I think it also attracted a lot of people who weren't really there for our mission of building this better consumer experience for the open web. That wasn't what they woke up and thought about. They loved the office in this hip neighborhood filled with other young people to go to lunch with. And, Mm. You know, I don't take it against them, but when we drop that, in order to, would I always love building international teams at HuffPost? While we had an office, and all of editorial was there, tech, design, engineering, product was under me, and we had ninety percent of the people all around the world, and there were four or five of us in the office. So I love the going remote. Um, I mean, I don't. I try not to say remote because that sounds like you'll never be part of the HQ, your remote, and so we use distributed. But um, but yeah, uh, it's been a journey.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, so it sounds like that was one of your biggest mistakes, like hiring too many people too fast, sacrificing values for short-term aggressive growth targets is kind of what it sounds yeah. like. But it sounds like you got past that, right, mm-hmm. in... You, you raised a lot of money at 23 million, which is awesome. But like, how did you get to this point where you're at 10 million and you're growing at 50% per year?
1: Well, we had to, um, after like figuring out not having burn and actually having a team of people who really cared about the clients, the product, the mission, and were aligned. Um, we luckily, I mean, it's not that I could have built this business without venture capital. Because the CMS business, that's the, the content management system, it's a huge technical barrier. You have to build, I've had 40 engineers working for nine years now, and we needed that time to build that product. Okay. Um, and once, the, now the product is so good, it's so sticky, and it produces real revenue in two forms. One is the... Monthly recurring of SaaS, when you charge five to 10 or 20,000 a month per client, it adds up quickly Mm -hmm. to cover costs. And then on top of that, we do creative agency work. And we built some of the biggest household, like for me, Huffington Post, but then we built the Dodo at Rebel Mouse, which is a huge, huge media company now. And we built Axios, which is also an enormous media company now. So we have a track record of taking an idea and turning it into a household name, and we get to sell our creative services at a high price tag. And that allows for the additional funding of the business without any venture capital.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I just saw an article about this the other day on Saster And um Is basically it's like if you're in the enterprise space, you're selling contracts like what you are, where it's 10, 20 K a month and you're not charging for services, you're just leaving money on the table because you end up getting sucked into doing a lot of the work anyways. You know?
1: So (laughs) we made we made a mistake early on where we bundled it all with no transparency that it was ten thousand a month and to be honest that definitely was another painful part of the business is sorting that out now we make it absolutely crystal clear to the clients what strategy work what design work what's coding development work and what the platform gives you isolated and then they can pay for those additional services but 100 percent, i it's a lot of revenue and a lot of uh you know a lot of money to leave on the table um and so it can keep you focused, you know, like, sure, I sometimes get jealous of a company like Slack, where it's like, just use the thing, and I'm not going to customize it for you. You're just going to wait for my next release if there's something you don't think is right, and everyone else is going to sign up. It, there There is a real beauty in those businesses. It's not the business we're in. We need to be able to help you customize the site to do the thing that was in your head. And so, with each piece of services work, we deepen the platform. So, the next time someone wants to do awards, you know, or voting or guest submissions, then every time we build something, we leave it a blueprint that makes it very easy just to turn that on for the next request. So that's why it works so well for us, is every services piece is it's actually, and then we're very closely aligned on selling to customers that actually need what we have. The most painful thing, which I didn't get that much into, but a bad salesperson sells whatever they can, and a really good salesperson sells what you actually have, (laughs) (laughs) Which is very different. And we would get deals with the height of the madness. I look at a deal and I'm like, wait, what is this? What are we building? And I regret that I said yes to a few of those because the hitting the bookings goal that we had was so ambitious and on this VC path and and prayed for the best, and those it doesn't come out well on those. Like, you actually want to have the customer is actually aligned and with the right expectations, and it's a real match on either side. So Chris Anderson is street chief strategy officer at Rebel Mouse and runs all the sales team, and what I love about his approach is that the number one thing Chris cares about is how it's going to feel to him when he sees this person again a year from the deal signing. Mm. And I'd rather grow a business slower, but with that feel that when you see the person you sold to, they say thank you and we love you, uh, and not what the hell happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's I, I love that. That's a really great like future frame of like, okay, how am I going to feel with this person? And like, I, so I've worked it with multiple different companies, right? And, and there's a fine line between as a leader too, of selling the vision and then selling also selling what's already made and created. Um, but I think that's, that's very creative and simple to say like, how am I going to feel when I see that person in a year? Yeah. Good and I do
1: think that there's times we were very transparent about it with the client but we'll meet a client who we don't have the product doesn't address all of their needs but what we're transparent is one is we check is their vision aligned with our vision so we're going it's their right for our platform but we have some missing things mm-hmm. then we just with clarity say look we already have 80 percent of what you've listed in requirements and here's how that will work the 20 percent that's missing we want to build that and here's the costs for us to build that for you and then the benefit is we build it here then you're going to constantly always be modern and always be a da. and that's how the the two work together and i wish we had done that from the start i'm very proud that we're doing that now we spent a lot of years not doing it right first <laughs>
0: that's cool though i mean i think that's that's a really that's a really good way and and i i think a strategic byproduct of that is people are probably more open to spending more money with you as a result of it too
1: yeah it turns out then you start to realize that there's all these you know as a SaaS company you don't really understand the budgets that your clients have or do or do not have you know so you actually end up through this process uncovering all types of budget that they're like oh i thought we were gonna have to pay this and pay that and you get to capture those budgets by building trust
0: yep yep that's great um so so let me ask you this, Andrea. How how do you you said one of your primary go-to-markets was word of mouth. And obviously I have some context to that now because of what you just walked us through, right? Mm-hmm. Like thinking about how the customer's gonna feel in a year. Um, what would you say, like what what enabled you to build that besides product? Like what were the nuances in between that helped you create a word-of-mouth engine for the organization?
1: Well, that's it's well, one that definitely it's kind of like I hadn't thought about it so much, but it is a profound question when you go into it deeply. Because, um, in a way, word of mouth starts at home base and your team, and how do they feel about the experience? You know, you hire mm-hmm. someone who has the right skills and and then you put them in your thing, and they're working with clients. and I think at the height. When we were off as a company, which I, I appreciate when founders don't just share their success, but I like that about the Ben Horowitz book where you know he filtered out everything that worked out and he just <laughs> talked about the horrible parts. It was such a I kind of enjoyed that. So so to channel a little bit of that when we were totally off on this, you'd end up with team members feeling super stressed out and unhappy and feeling like I'm just to put it bluntly as a team as a an employee working on a team you have to feel pretty certain that it's what you're working on is going to be successful and so when you think of word of mouth it actually has to begin with you can believe it and the people working on your team believe it too they can't wait for the thing to launch because of the numbers we're going to see and that feeling. And so I think a big part of it is starts with team. And then it definitely is working with clients so that we understand their pain points. Often, you know, what happens in tech is that I have a metaphor is that technology can often be treated as the waiter instead of the chef. And so we're often given in tech, here's what I need. And you don't really hear the, why do I need it? And so we always try to circle back. And it's been a big one with our customers is like, you want this because, and in the end, it's always back to more revenue. And so when you, when we help our clients actually generate so you know for example in the website business you can do some really cool things to generate more page views quickly or to reduce your bounce rate quickly but you only do those things because you want to grow revenue and so when we were off We were being maybe too shy to ask for their, we'd always ask for their traffic numbers and GA access Mm -hmm. and be all in on that. But we really should have been asking, and where do you keep your revenue data? And can we access that? It's more sensitive, but that's when you want to know, like when a chairman or a CEO is like, are they good or not? Well, if you change the revenue for the good, then they're going to like you (laughs) like it's that simple so i think that aligning towards can we directly impact the revenue numbers not just the page speed performance and the data but all those things are just a means to the real thing which is growing a business
0: it's true results yeah which is yeah true i mean like not synthetic you know kind of dress up results but actual results that are really going to move the needles so yeah i think that's and if that's, anyone's I mean, if
1: anyone's ever worked with an seo consultant you know that they, this exaggerates the world of web you can spend forever not moving the needle mm-hmm. or you can do in in mexico my my grandmother had this story she'd tell about this factory i find that a lot of people in a lot of countries have their own version but it was like in that time in mexico where every town was building a factory and then the factory would become the source of employment for the whole town so the story is there's this little town dependent on the factory and the factory breaks and everyone's freaking out because no one can fix the factory and without that factory they're all lost their jobs no one's going to get paid at the factory doesn't output so they call a consultant who's really good at fixing factories, and he goes and climbs all the way up into the corner, and he points to this hole, and he's like, put duct tape on that. And it works, and the factory starts working, and they say, okay, how much do we owe you? And it was like, I don't know, 5,000 pesos in that time. He was like, what, that's so much money for duct tape? He's like, well, 4,999 for knowing where to put the duct tape. <laughs> And I think that's our that's our business is like you want to move the needle in a in the most effective way possible.
0: I'm gonna love I'm gonna reuse it. I'm gonna recycle that story. I, I I'm recommend. Not it. Like, I'm not gonna <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna pretend like I grew up in Mexico in a little town or anything and I got it from my grandma. But I like that and I'm definitely gonna re-leverage that because I think that's cool. 4999 is nowhere to put the book tape, right? <laughs> so that's brilliant. Um <laughs> So, so let's shift gears real quick because we're, we're almost out of time. Um, You know, you obviously did a, an amazing job of setting up a team of 90 in almost, or I think, 31 countries you, you mentioned earlier. And you said that was one of your strengths, so, or at least when we talked prior. Yeah. So what's your framework for creating an international team? And then what are the economic benefits of that?
1: Well, the most important thing is that you find people who are actually aligned with your mission. If you think about that, you have to limit it to a geographic radius of can reach your office. That's an insane limiter in the world It's, it's mm-hmm. and that are available for the job. So I think the number one reason to do it is to find people who are absolutely passionate about what you're doing and it aligns with them because you have the whole world to look through. So the second thing is that you have to go deep into questioning all the unconscious biases that we're given. And I'm positive that most people don't wake up and say, I'm going to be a nationalist, racist, sexist person. But we also don't question underlyingly how we think about equality and treat each other. And so to exaggerate, you could have a A guy from India in Silicon Valley talking to someone his same age in India, and there will be a superiority complex for the one who's in California. Mm. And we do these things where if you hire someone and they graduated from Brown University and you know it and you have a junior marketing position for them, when you're describing the position, you're not just describing that position, you're describing what it can grow into because you inherently believe in that. International teams are almost never treated that way. So for example, our chief creative officer is a a woman in Serbia. She started as a junior account manager and it quickly became obvious to us that she was unusually brilliant. And she's risen up the ranks, but I think building an international team, you have to make sure that people understand grammar, doesn't really matter. It's about the power of ideas, the knowing where to put the duct tape. And then you have to um, get rid of a lot of unconscious barriers over like, oh, she's in Brazil. That means she's remote and can't ever be growing that much in the team. So I think when you do those things, then a lot of really beautiful and fun things come as you start to see people for real. You don't see a CSS developer in Brazil. You see the person and their background and the where do they want to go, and you do those kinds of conversations that build real growth paths. And it was shocking how few companies are doing this. The gratitude I have from team members to be given these opportunities that nobody else would give them is it's, it's pretty shocking to see how the state of technology is really kind of set up um, with a lot of subconscious bias.
0: That's, I think that's amazing. Cause like, I never really thought of it that way. Um, so thanks for opening up my eyes to that. And, it, and it's funny. Cause like, I don't know why this happens, but it seems like, and it's not always as the episodes are released, but the guests that I interview, the founders I interview have like an underlying theme. <laughs> like I, I just, it's, it's so weird. Like literally I just interviewed Steve Phillips yesterday. Um, they're about 50 million. He's at Zappy out of the UK. And he's, he really like, his big thing was culture and autonomy. And so it aligns with kind of what you're yeah. talking about of like, Enabling it. He's he was he was so deep on like how he leverages like the best practices from Netflix for their culture building and Zappos and how they integrated that mm-hmm. in. And um he even gave the story of like when they had a record breaking year and they all wanted to celebrate. He basically told the whole entire team, All right, you know, you get off early today, it's Friday, go out for a nice dinner um with your family. And the CFO said to him, This is the CEO I, I talked to. The CFO is saying to him. Um, shouldn't we put a budget on that? And he's like, no, he's like, we're giving them the freedom to do that. And he, he, the CFO was like, well, what if, what if they spend too much? Or what if they <laughs> do that? And he goes, well, we have to trust them that they're going to do the right thing. And he said, the average amount spent was 125 pounds or $125. Yes. He's like, yeah, there was one or two people that spent $350. And they asked him and they're like, well, my, my parents were in town. So I took them out too. And I wanted to share in the experience with them. So it creates that loyalty. So I thought that's yeah, a beautiful I love story it. that
1: kind of aligns with what you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. It's funny how the universe does this, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it happens every
0: time. It's, it's about different stuff. And I'm like, oh, and it's it's kind of like a slap in the face for myself <laughs> that I need to like pay attention <laughs> to that. You know what I mean? So um, mm-hmm. so anyways, all right. So we're just about up on time. That was awesome. Um, let's um, do a quick founder fire before we wrap. Um, what's your favorite book you've read over the past couple of years?
1: State of Wonder by Ann Patchett. Okay. Have not heard of that before? It's not a business. Um, that's great. Book. It's amazing though.
0: Okay. Um, on top of it too. Um, you know, is there a podcast or show that you absolutely love?
1: Oh, I feel like I am not. So I'm a music lover. So every moment I can have audio on, I've got new music Friday and collecting new playlists. So my wife is really good on podcasts. I I, I'm terrible. I just say new, new music is my obsession.
0: (laughs) Okay. No, that's awesome. And then, um, You know, is there a founder that you follow or CEO that you follow? They have an amazing respect for.
1: Well, Ken Lear is the real founder of Huffington Post and has started so many companies behind the scene. He kind of prides himself in being the man behind the man type of a personality. I've learned so, so much from him. And a highlight is that he told me at one point, he said, you know, it's never a business decision. It's always a personal decision.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay, I like that um and then what's an online tool you can't live without
1: well i think the way that i've wrapped in you could just take google suite of gmail meetings chat docs sheets presentations like whoa that whole i'm on android it's crazy how much google has captured my, my digital life okay
0: Excellent. So this is an amazing episode. So where can people find you? Where can they find out more about RebelMouse?
1: RebelMouse.com. And yeah, if you've got a marketing site or a high traffic site, we'd love to talk with you. And I'm on Twitter uh, most frequently or LinkedIn, Andrea Brianna.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for for coming on today. It was a a pleasure. And um, I look forward to seeing everyone on the next episode.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for checking out the scale up show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering